Well, g'day, folks, and welcome back to Plane Crazy Down Under, episode 35 of the program where we look at the world of aviation from an Australia-Pacific point of view. I'm Steve Vischer, and joining me live in studio this week is Grant McCarran. G'day, mate. Hey, mate. How you doing? Just sitting over there opposite me on the table. Yes, yes. It's not something we do very often, is it? Uh, no. Normally, it's over Skype, but uh, I've managed to abduct you away from the uh, stately Bentley Manor that is the PCD West recording facility. Yeah, that's right. Well, it's amazing what happens when uh, your place is sort of, but not quite almost entirely on the way home. <laughs> yes, it's only about, what, about a 100-kilometre diversion for you today? Yeah, well, you know, coming back in from uh, ballooning in the valley and uh, turn left instead of right, and oh, here I am! Yeah, yeah, of course, the bribe of free pizza probably had something to do with it. Uh, yeah, well, there was always that. <laughs> yeah. Well, folks, in the last episode, we did give you a bit of a, a bit of homework to do to try and guess who we might be speaking to this week. Uh, folks, I wonder how you went. We didn't see much uh, conversation on the forums, did we, Grant? So we don't uh, know whether we totally confused people or whether they just weren't sure. But uh, Or whether they're just slackers who don't come and comment on our forum or whether they're just like me and are so far behind getting everything done that I know I've got stacks of episodes to listen to. Uh, yeah. So it's possibly that. Well, of course, actually, it's somewhat topical this week because uh, if you are living in Australia or New Zealand, and unless, of course, you've been living under a rock, uh, you'd know that there's been some huge changes on the Australian political scene in the last week or so, which, uh, by whatever means it happened, uh, we now have our first female Prime Minister of this country. And uh, that's quite topical. In fact, it's uh, quite appropriate this week, Grant, that we speak to a another female pioneer. That's right. These days, the idea of having a uh, female Prime Minister is not that big a deal. We've had Helen Clark over in New Zealand. There's uh, some female premiers in charge of states here in Australia. And really, people aren't that shocked by it. Uh, well, maybe a few people who have no idea are. But on, on the whole, most people aren't really shocked about the concept of a lady running the country. And that's pretty indicative of how things have changed since, given in the 70s, the idea of having a lady as your, uh, in command of a large jet airliner was pretty out there and, in fact, just wasn't done. And, Grant, I can remember back in the uh, the late 1980s doing Year 11 and Year 12 legal studies, and one of the very famous cases that was almost mandatory study at that time was Ansett Airlines versus Deborah Wardley. And the reason we had to study that is because it was basically a landmark case in this country, particularly here in the state of Victoria too, for uh, the uh, equal opportunity laws, which uh, had uh, only recently at that time been introduced. And um, we're going to, uh, in this episode, catch up with Deborah. These days, uh, her name has changed to uh, Deb Laurie, and we were very privileged, Grant, to be able to speak with her recently and have a bit of a talk to her about her history, uh, you know, back in those times, back in the late 1970s and 80s, when she was uh, struggling to get uh, herself established in the airline industry in uh, in any capacity. And, uh, yeah, Grant, uh, a really fascinating chat about how uh, her life has gone since that time and uh, right through into what she's doing now. Just a fascinating chat, Grant. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, no, it was awesome. And uh, especially great that uh, she did go and plug in her mobile phone that we were chatting to her on. Otherwise, she would have run out of power well before we finished chatting. Very true. So, folks, sit back, relax, and enjoy this one. Uh, Deborah Laurie is one of the most, uh, in my opinion, one of the most important aviators in this country in recent times. And um, let's let's enjoy listening to her story. Deborah Laurie, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Deborah, you learnt to uh, fly. Uh, you had your private pilot's license at the age of eighteen back in the in the seventies. What made you start flying? I actually started flying when I was sixteen years of age, and what had happened was uh, when I was fourteen, my father had decided to ta- to um, take some flying lessons, as I think 
maybe some guys do in their midlife crisis or whatever. <laughs> and um, as, a, as his daughter, uh, I went along with him and helped him learn his checks and learn all about flying and all that sort of stuff. And I got interested in it because of him and he promised me two lessons when I turned 16 because you couldn't take lessons until you were the age of 16 okay. and then I had to prove to him by going solo I had to prove to him that I could do it because I actually didn't really like it when I started uh, for a number of reasons but once I'd gone solo I was really kind of hooked on it so <laughs> I continued on from there and flew I think I got uh I went solo when I was still 16 years of age and went uh, on to get my private license, commercial license and senior commercial license and then airline transport license. So once you got you got into it, you knew that uh, flying was where you wanted to be, where you, you wanted your career going? Well, at 16, you don't really know. Well, back in those days, I was that I couldn't have a career flying because girls didn't do that. So I was also studying to be to do school teaching. But the more I flew, the more I realised I wanted to make a career of it. So I just stuck with it. Because, yeah, the, during the 70s, that was quite a, a uh, society and peer pressure situation of, uh, of, you know, ladies do not go in the, in the aircraft type of thing. Well, a lot of people won't remember, or most they do remember, but women in those days couldn't even get loan. You know, it was very difficult to get a loan even from a bank. Wow. Uh, yeah. So, <laughs> so <it> was, <laughs> life was a lot different back then. So it was not a career. There were no female airline pilots in the country. Um, so it wasn't a career that I could look up to anybody and say, yep, I'm going to follow them in their career. I just thought, well, why can't I do it? I mean, I didn't see a reason why I couldn't do it. Yeah. But that's the part of being young and naive and, you know, yeah. not letting anything bother you. You're full of energy without much uh, knowledge of how to apply it. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> now I've got the knowledge, no energy, not, not quite. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's no. the joke. Energy is wasted on the end. <laughs> Before we touch on the uh, the rather famous trip through into the ranks of flying with Ansett, Deborah, um, when you were flying, uh, when you were doing your private licence, uh, that was down at Moorabbin, was it, somewhere in Victoria? Yeah. That's right, Moorabbin. Yep, that was my um, my airfield. Yep. Okay, and uh, who did you fly with there back in the day? It was a flying school called Pipe Air, and it doesn't exist anymore. It was a subsidiary of the Royal Victorian Aero Club. So it was a little school tacked on to the end of the Aero Club. So I guess you've seen quite a few changes each time you come back to Moorabbin. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> the change from uh, uh, an airfield where there was only flying schools or lots of them and um, lots of yards where they sold aeroplanes and things like that. But Moorabbin has changed over the years. Uh, it's become more, in a way, commercialised with other industries apart from aviation. Yep. There's, like, I couldn't believe all the warehouses or what what are they called, outlet stores and stuff. Oh, yeah. That are, yeah, that yeah, are, yeah because it's, it's prime land and mm-hmm. those places are encroaching 
on the area, just as they are at Essendon Airport as well. Oh yeah, Essendon is is in big trouble there. It's there's always arguments going and and discussions going back and forth between the airside tenants and representatives yeah. and the new owners. They're always wanting, oh, what happens if we do this? Well, that will destroy that whole runway. Uh, you won't be able to fly these yeah. aircraft in. You know, all that kind of stuff. It's I mean, yeah, we're seeing it at Bankstown as well. Yeah, there was a that very bad accident out of Essendon where the I think it was part Navia flew into a house off the end of the runway. You might recall that. Um, and that put a, Essendon Airport made it very uh, controversial with respect to the safety of the people living around the around the airport. Moorabbin, um, it hasn't been so controversial in that respect. I think I remember guys with a great joke, you know, when someone would go out and uh, have a flying lesson and end up in the sewerage farm out there in the training area. <laughs> yes. You know, so that was all this, your worst nightmare, you know. Yeah, but, you wind um, up in the poop, literally. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, but Moorabbin Mar- has changed a lot. I started learning there just after it had changed from being an all-over field. You could oh, okay. take off in any direction. Yep, um, when it was all grass. Yeah, when it was all grass. So I came there just after that phase. Um, and we used to do circuits, like, for instance, you'd have the normal circuit traffic, and then we would have what we called crosswind circuits when we were teaching guys to land crosswind takeoffs and landings and we would do them at 800 feet and all the traffic was at a thousand feet so we'd be buzzing around 200 feet lower than the rest of the circuit traffic which now when you think about it like there's no way they would they would do that type of thing now but that's the way it used to be back then yeah no it's now they just as of this week they're introducing the new changes which will be depending on mm. the type of aircraft, 500, 1,000, 1,500 for your circuit height. Yeah, but that's assuming you're all going in the same circuit. This, <laughs> this, yeah. this was, um, you know, <laughs> one, one the, the duty runway might be 1.7, but you had the crosswind circuits going on 1.3, for instance. Yep. Yep. Yeah, a lot yeah. more fun. It was, actually. <laughs> During your, your early early days as a private and then early commercial pilot, were there many other women flying at the same time, or were you pretty much the only one? There were other women, but they were mainly, um, they were actually a group that still is today in in strong force, and that's the Australian Women Pilots Association. There were a lot of women pilots who were members of that who were what I call recreational pilots. So I I did come into contact with those those women, and I did become a member of the Australian Women Pilots Association. And I had a lot of fun with that group because they had a lot of fun. So they did things like air racing and stuff like that. Uh, any other groups that you've joined, like the 99s or Women in Aviation International? I am a member of the International Society of Women Airline Pilots. Okay. And yeah, I've been a member of them since 1982, um, and that's been very interesting. I, I have um, association with the 99ers, but I'm not actually a member. Did you have any any heroes at that time that were pilots, like inspirational role models or anything like that? Uh, yeah, but no, nobody uh, anyone would know or recognise the name of. Um, there was a girl who flew for Continental Airlines. They were uh, women who had already made it in the airline industry, just a couple in the United States and uh, one in France. But no, you wouldn't recognise their names. It's just that they were in the industry at the time. And there was a lady who used to be married to an airline pilot and she she and I used to do a lot of air racing together. And 
she was 10 years older than me, so she had well and truly passed the time when she was eligible to become an airline pilot. I think she would have dearly loved to have been born a bit later. Uh, mm. I looked up to her because she was older, wiser, you know, all that <laughs> sort of stuff. So moving on to the uh, the airlines now, of course, uh, people of Grant and my vintage are, are well familiar with the with the story of your uh, progress into the airlines. But uh, for our younger listeners, and and especially for our overseas listeners, take us through the the ANSET saga. It was a long drawn out saga, wasn't it? And it went through right up to the uh, Supreme Court here in Victoria, just so that you could uh, actually get a job flying for the airlines here. Yeah, actually, it, it ended up in the High Court. But it started back in 1978 when I first applied to ANSET and also TAA, as it was known in those days, which for the overseas people stood for Trans Australia Airlines. But I applied to both those companies and I wasn't granted an interview at TAA, but I was granted an interview at ANSET only because I persisted kept ringing them up and updating my qualifications and so on. And I got right into the interview process. I even went for the psychological tests and got right to the end of the process and felt pretty confident actually that that I was going to be starting at that airline. And then I received a letter of, well, sorry, but uh, we're not we're not going to employ you as a pilot. Now, at that time, the Victorian Equal Opportunity Law had just been introduced into Victoria and it hadn't been tested out as yet. And I took my case, which I felt was a case of discrimination, to the Commissioner of Equal Opportunity and she investigated whether or not that case was a valid one, whether it was me just imagining this or whether there was some substance to it. She decided that there was and she actually tried to negotiate with Ansett Airlines and establish their reasons for not selecting me. But the reaction that she got led her to the conclusion that the only way to resolve it was actually to go to court. And that did in fact happen. Um, They formed the uh, Equal Opportunity Board and the case was heard before the board. Uh, ANSET lost and they appealed to the Supreme Court and I think two or three occasions and they lost on each of those appeals. And then finally the case was resolved in uh, in front of the full bench of the High Court, which was about just a little bit over a year after... So I started, sorry, in August 78 and it was resolved in... March of 80. So all of 79 was spent in the court business and then the following March in 1980, the decision of the High Court was handed down. They really fought it pretty hard, didn't they? Yeah, they did. Yeah. Well, that was because of Reg Ansett himself. He just had a bee in his bonnet and that was the way it was going to be. He was what we'd call old school these days. Very. (laughs) Yes. When you started making your initial um, applications to the airlines, what sort of flying experience did you have in your logbook at that time? I had about 2,200 hours because I ended up with 2,600 when I got in. And you were seeing you were seeing male pilots who had lesser hours and maybe not the same experience and they were obviously getting promoted ahead of you and getting into the airlines. I guess you would have noted that happening quite often at that time. Yeah, I even taught some of them that got in. Gee. So, yeah, so I had the distinct feeling of being left behind. 
And do you think um, Red Jansett, he, you were saying that TAA wouldn't give you a, a look in either, so you think Red Jansett yeah. was being the, the voice of the establishment at that time that, that, that wasn't used to thinking the way we would think these days about these sort of employment issues? Yeah, I think that's probably the case. Um, you know, TAA didn't even put themselves in a position where they had to you know, they didn't have the problem. It was only that, and I mean, you'll like this one because the person who was in charge of command and intake training was a, a Dutchman. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and I think his background probably played a little. I don't, I didn't recognise at the time, but having lived in Holland now for 16 years, it was probably his background where they're a little bit more progressive in that thinking, and they would have been back then as well, that he actually was the one that made the decision to even allow me to be interviewed. And once that happened, you know, the door was open or, you know, there was that crack in the door, if you like. I could have yeah. put my foot in it. Yeah, you, you, oh. had your, you had your foot in the door and that was it. Yeah, yeah, that was it. They weren't going to shut it. <laughs> I wasn't going to let them shut it anyway. I, I believe the phrase is tenacity. <laughs> yeah. You, you were showing that pretty well with your persistence and continually applying. So it's it's quite clear that now it's it's a lot easier for, for ladies to get in the door. And, and obviously back then it was it's a good indication that you are, do have a good stubborn and um, tenacity, persistence, those kind of things, yeah? That, well, you know, it was always said that uh, I wouldn't be sticking to the career. That was the big worry, you know, that women would run off and get married and have babies and all that sort of yeah. stuff. And I knew that that would not be the case, but it's very difficult to explain that to uh, people. But I knew that I wanted to keep this as a long-term career. I knew that very, very clearly in my own mind. And it's shown because I'm still actually in this career today. Yep. Indeed. Yep. Mm. What was the attitude of once you actually finally got into the pilot seat and, and actually took to the skies? Did you notice those sort of uh, old world attitudes amongst your your colleagues in the in the cockpit, or was that all just you know you were just seen as an equal once you were in there? No, that was very interesting. Um, in any airline, each aircraft that is on the fleet has a particular lifestyle and a particular culture, and so I went in on the smallest aircraft with the youngest captains and they were far more forward thinking and supportive of me than the captains who were flying around on the largest most prestigious aircraft in the fleet um, and it wasn't until I moved after a couple of years onto the largest aircraft which was the in those days the Boeing 727 that I came across some very chauvinistic captains who gave me quite a hard time but so it depended on their age, it depended on their background and mm. whether or not their wives were supportive even of yeah. my case. It was it was quite a strange situation. Interesting. Now now you'd gotten into the into the pilot class. What what was involved in the training? How, uh, what did they take you through? In those days too, training was a lot different. We spent something like six to eight weeks in a ground school. And we learned all the systems of the aircraft, like the electrical system, the hydraulic system, fuel, all that sort of stuff. But we learned it in very great detail. And after that, we went through what they call emergency training procedures, where you have to go down slides and jump in pools and get into life rafts and do all sorts of weird things like that. And then after that, you go and do your aircraft endorsement, which involves 
uh, flying the aircraft without passengers on board, but just doing circuit training and mm. practicing uh, stalling and, and steep turns and all sorts of stuff like that. Okay. And once you've done all of that, so we're now looking at perhaps three months later, you then start training on the line with a training captain, but you have passengers on board. Okay. Mm. Now, um, I, I was reading that uh, during your training, they, they, they were trying to get rid of you. Yes. What were some of the things they were doing to you? Is it like, was it like the hazing that you get in the military where they try and get rid of the weak, so to speak? <laughs> yeah, good luck. Um, no, <laughs> no, it wasn't quite like that. What had happened was, I, it's quite a story, but I'd had a, a, an incident at Moravan uh, when I was training a student night circuits and we had turned base leg and there was an aircraft on downwind and it was trying to cut us off and it uh. was doing it in a very unsafe manner. And this kind of event is reportable. So uh, I landed and I reported this to the uh, tower uh, and they said, yeah, okay, they hadn't seen it, but could I just put in a report? And in, in those days, you had to put in a form that was called a 225 because that was the number of the form that was a, an incident report that was used by DCA, as it was known then, Department of Civil Aviation. So I put one of these in and I got a reply back from them saying, yes, there was a breakdown in separation and we feel that you, you, possibly the other aircraft was in the wrong and so on and so forth and end of story. Now, this guy who had been in the circuit area had come to the flying school afterwards and tried to bully me and was very aggressive to the point where it's quite scary actually and eventually I got rid of him from the office but he was trying to intimidate me for whatever reason I'm not sure but he was being extremely aggressive now it turned out that he was flying illegally he didn't have the required license to be doing what he was doing Wow. Um, yeah, but that was I found that out much later. Now, in the meantime, he had, when my case was in all the newspapers with ANSET, this guy had contacted ANSET and said, I've got some dirt on her, <laughs> if you're interested, that she's actually unsafe. Well, this is kind of the magic word for ANSET. Oh, if yeah. they can say that I'm unsafe, well, then I'm out. So they didn't raise this during the court case, but they saved it when I started with uh, in on the training school so they summoned me to answer answer these charges of being unsafe which had nothing to do with their operation of course but it was this event at Moravan and on the information that they'd got from a, this guy who was actually the guilty party so that's how stupid they were that they didn't investigate the facts yeah. correctly Anyway, the pilots' union got involved at this stage because they weren't going to stand for a uh, union member being uh, harassed in this manner. And so they came in on my side. And the next thing I'm telling you is at the absolute truth. I had been a week in uh, ground school and I was summoned by ANSET management to come and face these charges of being unsafe. And three uh, union members escorted me into the meeting room with, uh, there were three ANSET management officials sitting on the opposite side of the table. I had been briefed by the union guys that I wasn't allowed to say anything. Hmm. So I thought, right, good. And the first question that was put to me was that I was only allowed to have two union representatives. So which two did I want? 
And, of course, I'm not allowed to say anything, so I didn't. And there was, then proceeded to be an argument backwards and forwards between the union guys and the ANSET management guys about the number of people that would be in the room. <laughs> uh, it was hysterical. And eventually, uh, all the time, mind you, also, I had a piece of paper that was absolving me from this crime anyway. But eventually, the ANSET management walked out of the room to have some kind of conference and came back in. And of course, you can imagine the language that was going on whilst they were out of the room. <laughs> they came back in and um, they said, no, you can only have two. So you have to decide who you're going to have. And with that, the three union guys stood up told the ANSET management where to go in no uncertain terms and started walking out of the room and I stood and went with them and <laughs> it was never, ever, ever raised again. Wow. Mm. That's that's an intense scene. Yeah. <laughs> well, it was very it was very intense. I had not said a word. I was just witnessed the whole thing. I couldn't believe what I heard. Oh, wow. And I just went back to the classroom and was supposed to be like nothing had happened. <laughs> <laughs> wow. It's almost and, like uh, an episode of Underbelly in the Airlines, isn't it? <laughs> it was a bit, yeah. Hold <laughs> exactly. on. I mean, did, it, did, did you ever wind up presenting the paper? Did it ever get taken to that level? Uh, it, it? Was, it was on television. Um, the union rep was on television um, saying how they disgusted they were that that, that, that type of um, behaviour of the management towards uh, a person who was trying to do the training. The details of that, that meeting, of course, didn't come out uh, the way it <laughs> proceeded, but that's just, you know, by the by. But, yeah, it never does. Uh, <laughs> No, it never does. But there were there were several, you know, things that went on like that. But that was the worst. Oh wow! And it was it wasn't until I guess the Rupert Murdoch takeover of Ansett in the December that that happened in November, yep. and then about two weeks later, Ansett was taken over by Murdoch and Abel, and it changed after that. Yeah, well, when you change the head, it generally changes the way the body reacts, doesn't it? That's correct. Yeah. Because that was one of the issues you were encountering was uh, you'd gone through past all your training, but mm. other you you were left on the sidelines. You weren't taken on to go for your line training, were you? Well, that's right. Yeah, after the training school finished, they processed everyone to do the aircraft training down in Tasmania at Launceston, and they left me behind with two other guys. And you always did things in pairs, so it was very obvious what was going to happen. Huh. was that I was going to be um, eliminated and the other two were conveniently left as a pair. What they didn't know was that I'd actually taught Rupert Murdoch's brother-in-law how to fly. <laughs> so, That's a nice ace to hold up your sleeve. It was an ace up my sleeve, yeah. They didn't, they didn't know that. So Murdoch actually, eventually a memo was issued in the company that I was to be treated like everybody else. So then the three of us went down to Launceston. And they had to. Tra they trained. They paired me up with one of the other guys, and the and the other guy was left by himself to train. <laughs> Lucky him. <Yeah. yeah. laughs> yeah, it was good fun though. It was really we had a good time down there. That, uh, <laughs> of course, they didn't want to put me on my own because they needed to have. They were very conscious of having witnesses to everything. Yeah, nothing could be done quietly or on the side. It had to be in front of as many people as possible, right? Well, yeah, and it's more like uh, they wanted to avoid the situation of he said, she said. Yeah, yeah. If anything was going to go wrong, which it still could have, at least I'd say, well, both people would say, yeah, they could confirm one side yep. of the story, you know, that sort of stuff. 
You say it was fun, Deborah, but really, at that time, that must have been very, very, a very, very stressful time for you. What did you do as a circuit breaker? Was there any time you could switch off and, and get away from that, or was it just constantly? I mean, you had the television cameras pointed at you all the time. That must have been an extremely challenging time for you. Uh, yeah, I, it, you couldn't really escape because um, it was important to keep the press on side. It was important to have the right image publicly and so you could I couldn't afford to just run away and hide or something like that I had to be up front and on my best behavior all the time and and not shy away from anything and that that yeah that was quite hard you know now you uh, got married just at the start of your training didn't you yeah, that's right. Actually, I got married uh, one week into the court case. Uh, oh. and, yeah, it was a bit unfortunate timing. <laughs> and I can remember the um, chairman of the board, uh, the first question he asked me the following Monday was, which name did I want to proceed under? Uh, Laurie, because everything had been under Laurie up until that point, And Wardley was the married name. So did I want to proceed under Laurie or Wardley? And of course, you know, panicking like just brand uh, newly married, I sort of went, well, well you know, Wardley. And um, <laughs> that was the name that, of course, became in the newspapers and television after that. So I still sometimes answer to that name well yeah I always answer to that name if someone calls it out but yeah so I sort of got this dual identity (laughs) (laughs) well did did this whole the court case and then the training and the 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 situation with the safety supposed safety issue and and then not being sent down to Tasmania and all these kind of things that that would have put a bit of strain on the the marriage wouldn't it um the strain on the marriage really came once I started flying uh unfortunately um Peter was actually, I think, it's hard to say what would have happened, but it was such a uh, strange situation where I'm brand new into this uh, career, which is spearing off at a million miles an hour, and he was sort of left behind, you might say. So there was like a diversion of tracks, and right. and that just, that rift got bigger and bigger and bigger. So it was... It, it was unfortunate, and there was one stage there where I had to make the decision, do I still keep this career or do I try and salvage the marriage? And the sanity prevailed, and I kept flying <laughs> because, <laughs> because I don't know. There's no, there was no guarantee that that would have been enough to have saved it. So, you know, I'm very sort of... Um, well, I'm quite certain about that looking back on it. Of course, at the time, you don't know these things, but it would have been a very stupid thing for me to have thrown my career away at that stage. No, I understand. Yeah. And it's, I must say it's it's interesting to hear that it, it, you know, you're having the same kind of discussion that I know a couple of pilot friends have gone through where their long haul or their continued flying or their love of aviation has caused problems with their partnership. And oh, like, yeah. Continue, you know. A lot of pilots have several marriages <laughs> Yes, yes. Or the the aircraft is is called the other woman um, <laughs> for a lot of the guys, and it's, uh, you know, it's 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 interesting to hear that it's it's not just a guy thing, if you know. No, what I mean. no, no, it's not. No, and and you know, when I was flying when I was younger, and that, um, a lot of the wives used to get jealous of me. I don't know why, because the flight attendants were far more promiscuous than I was, but. Um, <laughs> 
you know, uh, that was the situation you were in because you're away with somebody, overnighting, um, spending a lot of time with people, um, enjoying relaxing with people and all that sort of stuff. Um, it's the ultimate office party, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, good point, especially on the long haul overseas and so on. Yeah, that, 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 were good. <laughs> that was good fun. I think it's the term with aviation that you hear banded around a lot. There's people who get it and there's people who don't get it. And that's yes. what I find with aviation. You know, it gets in your blood. But to, to try to explain it to somebody who just doesn't get it, you're yes. almost wasting your breath, I find. Well, that's correct. And, and a lot of people feel insecure because of it. You know, they're, they're checking up on or worried about what the other half is going to get up to. And, and that creates a lot of strain on relationships sometimes oh, definitely yeah. definitely yeah let's look at looking through your career you've been down in um in tasmania and um you were starting on the Fokker friendship the f27 yes yep that's right how long yeah. were you flying the f27 for uh, a year okay uh, because the airline was growing quite rapidly after i joined and i had the wonderful opportunity to go on to the dc9 oh cool so yeah so i only flew the friendship for a year Okay. Because Ansett operated a lot of the friendships, didn't they? They were a, a pretty yep. uh, big operator of them. Amazing aeroplane, actually. When it was fantastic. Yeah, the old darts when they'd fire up and that uh, yeah. smell of Avatar would go right through the whole fuselage. Love it. <laughs> Same. <laughs> I, I flew on them as a kid in New Zealand with NAC. And, um, oh, yeah, okay. I, I, my favourite thing to do was to be downwind of a friendship when it fired up. <laughs> oh, yeah. And it makes the noise with the props. Mm-hmm. That high yeah. whine and everything. Yeah. Well, you know the, the nickname it had? It was affectionately known as the 10-ton dog whistle. <laughs> yeah, no, it was very high-pitched whine out of that. It was, yeah, was, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> where were you based? Melbourne. Melbourne, right, okay. Yeah. I actually uh, sprung an F-27 at Essendon. Um, there's one doing the maritime research. Oh, uh, yeah. It's the super, yeah. the, the super friendship. Well, you know, and, and the Fokkers are, are really solidly built aircraft, so they last forever. Yeah. Not like some of the plastic stuff they make these days. Well, it's the same with cars, isn't it? The old ones. Yeah, yep, yep. How long were you flying the nine for? I only flew the nine for 18 months because they phased it out okay. and replaced it with the Boeing 737. So then I did four years on that aircraft and then I went to the 727, which was a fantastic experience because it was the first three crew operation and I flew that for four years and that brought us up to 89 and the pilot's dispute. Okay and so on the 737 that was the Dash 200 yeah? The 200 yeah the noisy one. <laughs> yeah yeah the one with the stove pipes. <laughs> yeah that's the one yeah. 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 yeah I was actually doing my command training on the 737-300 when the strike okay. came. I did my last flight on the 7-2 and then Started training on the seven three, and then the strike happened. Okay, well we'll get so that, to the, we'll get to the strike in a tick. But uh, before we do, uh, what, what's the better plane then, Deborah? The seven two or the seven three? Well, definitely not the seven three. It would have to be a, a yeah between the nine and the seven two. But I'd probably uh, that's a good question. The DC nine is a bit like flying a sports car around, oh. um, but the seven two had special things about it. it it's just the greatest aeroplane so um, I guess if there was ever anything I wanted to fly again before I would retire it would be 727. Interesting because mm. yeah I've, I've had a few flights on the cockpit um, I was lucky enough way before 9-11 of course 
to uh, go up and have a chat with the flight crew and talk about you know what I do with flying and all that even back then and uh, they'd be like oh strap in for the landing and things like that and mm. even got a full flight take off through landing going back from Adelaide to Sydney one time and yeah mm. quite an impressive aircraft they, they, yeah very they and very it, fast uh, very yes. fast and very noisy <laughs> and could bite you if you did something wrong <sighs> well that's exactly right the training captain uh, that I first flew with he because the 727 has a very high wing loading and yep. um, he said to me Pointing to the thrust levers, he said, when you're absolutely sure that you've finished with the wings, you can close those things. <laughs> so it was, you know, you may as well have just chopped the wings off when you close the thrust levers. It was that yes. sort of an aeroplane. You either greased it on or it smashed on. <laughs> Shot down or landed. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Yeah I've, heard, yeah, I've heard a few pilots talking about how it bit them a couple of times when they thought they were safe on the ground. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, it was a very um, special in that way. <laughs> yeah, you were, you, if you could fly that successfully and well every time, you were a real pilot. Is the mm. Mm. Yep. Okay, Excellent. now we, uh, we talked about the, uh, the famous or infamous, depending on people's points of view, I guess, uh, pilot strike in 89. Now, of course, I think just about or maybe all of Australia's uh, commercial airline pilots resigned en masse uh, at that yeah. time. Um, where did that leave you? Well, that left me in a terrible position because um, just being on that cusp of getting my command, but I stuck with the, the union and so I stayed out which in the end we were frozen out, if you like, or blacklisted. So I wasn't going to be able to resume my career in Australia, so I had to start looking offshore. Back then, uh, it was the most awful, awful feeling because I felt like my, I was washed up, that my career was over. And when I think back now, I think, what a stupid thing to be thinking. <laughs> but, of course, you don't know what's ahead of you. Um, back then, I would say the pilot strike was the worst thing that happened in my life. And now I look back and say, maybe it was one of the better things that happened in my life. Because after that, I had the most wonderful career overseas. And I would have missed on that, missed out on that. The pilot strike here in Australia was the, the closest equivalent I can get for um, people in the US is, is wow. the uh, PATCO controllers strike, where Reagan fired them all in mass. Yeah, yeah. Yep, the air yeah, that's right. Yeah, I, I remember the uh, there were some jokes on the radio uh, because Bob Hawke and Paul Keating were in, to, in power at that time, I believe. And uh, yeah, the, yep. the jokes on the radio, they, there was one of the, the breakfast comedy crowd was doing, uh, you know, the uh, ladies and gentlemen, this is uh, Bob Hawke on the uh, flight deck here. And he was because he was he made the famous comment that it's just like driving a bus. Yeah, and so they had, yep, yeah, that was it. And so they had uh, that they were taking the Mickey out of him by um, trying to make out that he was, uh, you know, would take off as soon as I can figure what this lever does. Uh, Paul, what's that button do? You know, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I, I do remember that. And actually, I was in a hotel room because we were uh, in Sydney three years before that uh, with a whole bunch of American airline women airline pilots, and ANSET was hosting the convention, the annual convention for the international. Society of Women Airline Pilots. Wow, changed a bit and, since you started. <laughs> yeah. And Continental Airlines had just gone on strike. And so that was Lorenzo. I don't know if you remember that yeah. name, but he was quite a ruthless character. And there, I remember sitting there thinking, those stupid Americans, you know, this is typical. Not even in a million years thinking that I would be in a far worse situation mm. and far more ruthless 
uh, battle the, in less than three years from then. Well, this, this, uh, the, the pilot strike, with, the situation was all about um, wage suppression and so on, wasn't it? Correct, yeah, that was yeah. right. The wages had been frozen for seven years or something and it was um, the time of the negotiations and um, both companies joined together and decided to try and recover some of that wage loss. Yeah. Um, but it was also the eve of deregulation. Yeah, and, the two airline um, policy was in effect the, then, wasn't it? Well, the two airline policy was going to be disappearing. Deregulation was going to be starting. So it, it was to the advantage of the likes of Abel's and Australian Airlines at the time to get a stronghold or, or get control of the, the, the most powerful union, which was the pilot union, mm -hmm. because if they had that, them under control, then they had the flight attendants under control, they had the engineers under control, yep. had everyone under control. No, exactly, because they, 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 they saw it as starting at the top and the pointy end and working backwards. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yep. Mm. Yeah. You thought everything was over and you went back to teaching for a bit, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. Also, because I was um, pregnant, uh, at that stage I had my first child my only child, I should say. Uh, but, yeah, I went back teaching mathematics at high school. And that was that was while the whole dispute was being sorted out or was that that's afterwards? correct, yeah. No, that's during the dispute um, and just the... and a short time afterwards until I tried to re-establish myself. Mind you, I was very lucky because I had had that career back when I thought that or if I was told that women wouldn't have a career in airlines and I think I remember telling you that I did my teaching degree to as a backup. Yep. Well, it came in very handy because most of the other guys had to go out and pluck chickens and stuff like that. So, mm. yes. um, Because they didn't have anything else to fall back on. The rule of thumb so, these days for anyone who's becoming a pilot, everyone says always make sure you have a, a fallback career, something else you can do when times are tight. Absolutely, yes. Yeah, yeah this yeah. definitely shows that. Yeah, so so I was really fortunate in that respect because I could still earn quite a good wage. Yeah. I was frustrated, but I could still earn <laughs> a good wage. Yeah, there's nothing like being grounded. So uh, a few months in the classroom uh, as a teacher, was that enough to make you realise that flying is really where it's at? It was a year, and I didn't ever stop thinking that. Um, I, I was even more determined. I, I, I said to myself, Nobody is going to tell me when I'm going to terminate my career. I will make that decision. And so I started very, very, uh, looking very hard overseas. It was very difficult, though, because all the Asian airlines at that stage didn't have women, all the uh, Middle East countries yeah. didn't have any women. Uh, America, you needed a green card. Europe was really the only opportunity and there were very few opportunities within Europe as well. England was out because you had to start all, all over from the beginning again. Ouch. So, yes, terrible. So <laughs> there was only really France and uh, Holland and Belgium and that sort of thing. Okay. So, and, and so um, Holland is where you ended up and you were started flying with KLM. Correct. Yeah. Uh, you went. Uh, your son was about uh, two years old at that stage, wasn't he? Twenty-two months old. Yeah. And were you still married at the time? Did you go over as a whole family, or was it just yourself and your son? Uh, yeah. So now we're talking about husband number two. Okay. Yeah. Sorry, just that bit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because uh, remember, every good airline pilot's got to have at least three. But um, <laughs> yeah, no, husband number two, and 
we did go over together, but that was only for a short period of time. Okay. Okay. Mm. How would you contrast flying in Europe, uh, particularly when you first got there, compared to flying in Australia? I guess uh, the first thing you'd notice is uh, it's a lot more high density. Yeah, a lot more high density, a lot more random weather conditions. You know, I'd never flown in snow before, or those temperatures, or the uh, some of the most horrendous um, environmental conditions. Um, the language, uh, just being in a culture that was not my own, that was also difficult to start with. But as time went on, um, I got more and more used to those things, and Europe actually works quite well. Uh, and I have to say the airspace in Europe works a lot better than the airspace in Australia. Because <laughs> when I left Australia, it was much less complicated than it is now. It's interesting yeah, they... you say that because um, and I, I did the bulk of my training in the United States. And I, mm. coming back to Australia uh, in the early 90s, I, I actually found it a lot more complex trying to learn here, the, trying to relearn the way they did things here at that time. Uh, I know it's yeah. all different now, but it's interesting to, to hear you say that. Well, I mean, I've only just recently gone back out on the line and I kept saying to people, I don't remember that it was this complicated. Have I missed <laughs> something or what's going on here? And I said, no, no. This, this has become this way since you left. And that's really sad to see. It's like the rule, the rule lawyers have um, gone crazy in creating rules to help make sure they have a job. Mm, yeah. It's not to be cynical. Um, yeah, no. But it, it's, some of it I, I think it's quite dangerous. And I've spoken about that um, at various forums. Um, and it's yeah, something that I'm quite passionate about, actually, is trying to fix it up. Okay. Yep. Dan, mm. uh, we'll, we'll come back to that one in a sec. So how long were you flying with KLM? 16 years. What aircraft were you flying? Over there, I flew um, the Fokker 50 and then Fokker 70, Fokker 100. Okay. And that's with uh, KLM City Hopper. And then I moved across to Mainline and flew the A330. Cool. So how was the 50 compared to the 27? Was it because that was... Uh, a, very, a yeah, very similar without the squealing and without that um, pneumatic um, puffing and huffing and puffing stuff that went on with the <laughs> F-27. Yes. Fox 50 is lovely aeroplane. Very nice. Cool. And what was, you said a Fokker 70? Yes. Which one was Fokker, that one? Uh, it's like the, it was like the F-28, but an, a, a modern version of the uh, F-28. So it's like a little, a bit like the DC-9 to look at. Okay. Okay, and the Fokker 100 is the stretch version, and there's quite a few of them over in Western Australia with the yeah. Skyway. Yeah, because I remember the 28, and I knew that went to the 100, but I didn't realize there'd been a 70 in the middle. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, the 70 was the glass version and, um, you know, better systems on board. A seven, the Fokker 70 was actually a very advanced aircraft for its, uh, for its time. Okay, cool. So that was, that was quite a lot of fun to fly, yeah? Okay. Yeah, definitely, because uh, I was going to all kinds of different places in Europe, very all different cities in it, and overnighting there, and it, that was fantastic fun. Do you fly um, uh, more sectors when you're in Europe, a lot shorter sectors, I guess, than you would here, but a lot more of them in a day? Yeah, um, about the same. The, the average sector there would be an hour and a half, because on average, like we would do, for instance, um, Amsterdam, Paris, 
which might be only uh, 50 minutes, but then if you're going to uh, Germany, like Munich and, and um, the southern parts of Germany, that's like an hour and 20. And then if you're going across to England, it's an hour and, an hour and 20 or an hour and a half, depending where you're going in England. And we went up north into Scandinavia and down south into Italy. So uh, we had a very wide network. So some of the short flights, yeah, we, we would also do, we did this, uh, what we called the Bristol-Cardiff Triangle, and Bristol to Cardiff was only like 10 minutes. So that was amazing. Oh. <laughs> but getting across to Bristol, yeah, it was like an hour and 10 or an hour and 15. 10 minutes, it's like rotate gear up, oh, flaps 40. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> you had to take off, yeah, gear up, flap up, all that sort of stuff fly to the island, line it up with the runway, and then a year down, you were in. It's very quick. <laughs> That's quicker than some of my circuits. <laughs> yeah, I know. It was like a circuit, but in a straight line. Mm. That's that's gold. That's Here's awesome. a question that, that uh, just as, as an aside, flying in the Netherlands, um, are there many, like for instance, Schiphol, is that below sea level? What's the elevation? Yeah, 12, 12 feet. Gee. Yeah. So... Uh, because skip hole is um, means ship's hole. It, yep. It's where yeah where they um, drained the land and they found a lot of shipwrecks there. Yep, so that was the original. The origin. Yeah, that's yeah. right. So now I understand you um, you wound up as the training and safety manager or captain there. Um, I was a training captain on the Fokker Fifty for a number of years, and yep. I got sent a book by a girlfriend of mine in America. She flies with um, FedEx. And the book was titled Why Airline uh, Disasters Continue to Happen. And I thought, wow, you know, and I started reading that and I got absolutely soaked up in uh, airline safety. And it became, I just became passionate about it. And I started uh, studying it, studying everything I get my, could, could get my hands on about airplane crashes. I just read it. And... Um, went to Cranfield University and did an accident investigation course. I came back and in those days the depart the safety department of KLM City Hopper wasn't developed. So I wrote a business plan for that and set up the whole safety department there and ran that for eight years and um, eventually developed, along with two other colleagues, our own uh, investigation course specifically for airline operators because if you have a, an aviation accident, uh, it's not the airline operator that investigates that, it's the, the NTSBs or the ATSBs yep. of the world. But airlines have to often investigate their own incidents and they need to have the skills to do that. And we recognised that that wasn't being taught by anybody. So we developed our own course back in 2003, and I do that as well as uh, flying now. Okay. So that, that KLM were, were very advanced for their time in what they were doing. Well, they were because they had a history of Tenerife, and um, so they've always been leaders, I guess, in uh, cockpit resource management and safety training and, and things like that. And because KLM City Hopper and KLM UK were joined up so we had a lot of British pilots in, a, in fact it all became Carolyn City Hopper but it was a very multicultural airline 
when I started out, it was 50% Dutch and 50% English. And it, was, <laughs> and it was funny because the Poms used to say to me, well, you understand how we think, don't you? And I, said, and I sort of would, but I also understood how the Dutch thought. So because I, I was brought up in their culture, if you like, from the airline perspective. Yep. So I was in a very funny position in that respect. But it, it was very, it was interesting times, very interesting flying. Yeah. Uh, I did most of my command years there. So, you know, flying with, uh, as a captain, uh, yeah. which was great, great fun. <laughs> and, and also doing the safety stuff, which I got more and more and more involved with. I ended up working with IATA on their um, safety committees and I was chairman of the European Regions Airline Safety Committee for five years. Wow. So, hmm, yeah. So I, I got international status, I think, while I was there. So that was oh, that great. was good. Hmm. Yeah. Well, that's a good way to stick it to poor old, well, I say poor old, but to Sir Reg all those years back. That, uh... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> or oh, that unsafe person that he was. Yeah. <laughs> and here you, are, here you are doing air safety investigations all these years later. So. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's quite funny, I think, yeah. when I think back like that, yeah. Flight experience 556, you're cleared for takeoff. Imagine sitting in a pilot's seat, flying past London Bridge or the Eiffel Tower, and landing at just about any airport. It's not just a flying experience, it's flight experience. From the roar of the engines to amazing visuals, flight experience puts you in control of a 737 flight simulator. It's so real, your senses actually believe you're flying. For more information, go online to flightexperience.com.au or call 1-800-737-800. Flight experience, the ultimate flying experience. Experience. I'm Matt Hall. Hi, I'm Matt Hall. I'm Matt Hall. No, I'm Matt Hall. No, I'm Matt Hall. Everyone wants to be Australia's champion Red Bull Air Race pilot, and now you can own a piece of Matt Hall memorabilia. Polos, t-shirts and caps for all shapes and sizes can be found at matthallracing.com. Just go to the online store and you too can be in the loop. Hello, I'm Matt Hall. If you're listening to this podcast, chances are you're in the aviation industry. You could also be spending bucket loads of cash on advertising your business. Well, this won't cost you bucket loads. Advertise here on Plane Crazy Down Under, listened to by hundreds of aviation enthusiasts and professionals who might really like to hear about how your business could help theirs. We'll even throw in some advertising on our website as part of the deal. See our affordable rates at www.planecrazydownunder.com. Just click on the advertising with PCDU link. Pilot Stu here from the Pilot's Journey podcast. You're listening to Plane Crazy Down Under, where it's what's down under that counts. Now back to Grant and Steve, the masters of sound effects. Now, it was during, during the time with KLM that you, you went from the Fockers across to the Airbus. Yeah, the A330. Yeah. Now, that's a big change. You're, you're, you're mm. going into not just a a glass computerized cockpit, but that whole Airbus, the pilot sort of says what he wants in the aircraft interprets as opposed to the Boeing or some of the classic approaches, which is the computers advise the pilot who then does what he wants. Well, in actual fact, uh, the Fokker was as sophisticated, if not more in some respects, than the Airbus, the Fokker 70. Uh, but yeah, you're right. Uh, Air Fokker 70 was also a glass cockpit. I think the 
big difference between the uh, going on to the 330 was that was my first wide body jet and that's that's kind of a, a big thing because now you're flying something with a lot of momentum and you have to turn before you're normally used to turning and uh, take into account this mass that's so much heavier than anything else you've been flying and, and you have to get used to accounting for that. And use a side stick. Yeah. Yeah, now that was different as well, <laughs> mind you, because uh, the the Airbus also has the tray table that you pull yes. out and you pull your charts on and all that sort of stuff. And, the you know, you hear guys saying, I could never do without my tray table. Well, it's true. I don't know what I would do without that tray table anymore. <laughs> but the, the side stick is quite, I thought, I'll never get used to that. But that was one of the easiest things to get used to. Can you describe for us the uh, the conversion process from, from the Fokker across to the A330? What sort of uh, ground school is involved with that conversion? Most of it was done by what they call computer-based computer training. If In the old days, you did the full classroom business. These days, it's common. You just get, like, here's the material on your the laptop, and you learn it by listening to what it has to say and then doing quizzes and things like that. So it's mainly self-taught, but then you go in and you do classes on performance, on um, uh, systems like the flight management system and things like that, which you you can only learn by hands-on. And then you go into the simulator and do, I think we did like 11 sessions or something in the simulator. That's quite rigorous, so you train all the different failures that in the old days we used to train in the aeroplane, but now you do it all in the simulator. And then we had a fabulous trip down to Chateauroux in France with seven or eight of us, and we had one by one took it in turns to do circuits in this thing, which is quite amazing. <laughs> cool. Yeah, that was pretty good. And <laughs> then we came back to Amsterdam, and the following day we're out with passengers on line training with a training captain. And my wow. first trip was to uh, Washington. Yeah. That's, a, that's a good first trip. Yes, it was, yeah. Across the Atlantic for the first time. And, wow. Uh, yeah, all that stuff that goes on there and very interesting. <laughs> yeah, transoceanic over the Atlantic is pretty intense. It is, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One question I've got is uh, now when, for example, if the pilot flying is moving their side stick, mm-hmm. my understanding in the A330 is that the pilot not flying, their stick is not moving at all. That's correct. Uh, the handover is, is okay. Um, uh, the thing is the, there's no feedback in the other control stick. Uh, but if, if bo- bo- both pilots can move their side sticks, and if you do move them, the it's it's um, adding up. So, for instance, if both pilots move the side six to the right, then the input to the right is actually double. Wow. Or if one moves it to the right and one moves it to the left, the net result is zero movement. Okay. So it's a big no-no in the Airbus not to have a dual input, and the aeroplane will announce dual input if it senses that both pilots are have an input onto the controls or in the controls. Right. Mm. Okay. And so how do you how when you do a handing over taking over is it you get everything nice flat and level or in a constant bank or something like that or That's the same as the nor- any other air- aircraft. It's just you, are you ready to take over and as soon as you release one side stick the the other person it, it takes their side stick it's very little you don't notice really anything 
at okay. all because the airplane's quite stable. So once you've established in a t- turn, I mean, I wouldn't normally hand an airplane over in a turn anyway. It's probably be better to hand it over when it's straight and level. Mm. But the, it, it, you don't really feel all that much. It's not as likely as if you've got to grab it and not let it sort of go back to a neutral position or something like that. It's it's yeah. much easier, actually, I think, than okay. a standard aircraft. Because, yeah, we'd, once you go into a bank, you let go of the stick and it holds it in that bank, doesn't it? Yes. It, yeah. It, uh, you're actually commanding a rate of turn rather than yep. a bank angle. Yeah, because unlike, like for instance, handing over between a couple of pilots and a Cessna, it's like you just grab the controls and keep them where they are at the moment. But with the stick, yeah. it's, yeah, right. okay, yeah. I get you. Mm. Interesting. Mm. So that was one little thing that always fascinated me about that uh, whole Airbus stick mm. and input scenario. It trims itself. Oh, wow. Yeah, so that's that's a hard concept to get used to because you're sort of wanting to trip all the time. But after a while, you get used to the, the fact that the airplane doesn't need, it trims itself. <sighs> so when you go back and fly, um, like I flew uh, the Boeing simulator just yep. recently, and I thought, why am I... Pu- you know, I've got a trim. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've I've still got dents across the back of my head from my instructor reminding me about trim. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's a little different in that yeah. way. Interesting. Yeah. So I guess I guess given you said you would your your the last plane you want to fly before you retire was a seven two seven. I guess um, Boeing um, still wins over Airbus for you. The seven two seven from the nostalgic point of view. Okay. But the three thirty is beautiful. Cool. Yeah, I like the three thirty. <laughs> and what do you think of the 380, Deborah? Um, it's ugly. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, I don't like flying ugly airplanes. <laughs> and if you look at the 330, it's got a very elegant wing, and um, you know you feel sort of good in that. I mean, yeah. I, I think the 380 is a guy airplane. Excellent. I'm told it handles similar to the 330, just bigger. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It it probably would, although it has a higher momentum, of course, because of the the weight. So, yep. I've I've had travelled once on it as passenger, and I was staggered at how long it took to accelerate. Yes. Uh, yeah. Oh God. So, it it has a, a level of that kind of inertia that's a step above the current wide bodies that we're used to. I think. Here's a question for you related to. Um You've you've been with KLM for a while. You've you've flown a lot of aircraft. So, what made you come back to Australia? My son had been with me in Holland, and for the last couple of years of his uh, school, um, I actually sent him back to boarding school in Australia because I didn't think he was coping in the international system in Holland. And he started struggling in year twelve. So I decided I needed to come back and help him through year 12 and at the same time took that opportunity to re-establish in Australia because in KLM uh, the retirement age is much sooner than it is okay. in Australia so okay. that was like well the first priority was to get him through year 12 and then the next priority was to try and establish back in the uh, airline industry. Having said that he is now in Holland in uh, <laughs> in um, the uh, aviation school over there. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Mum. Bye. <laughs> yeah, thanks for that, Mum. Yeah, I'll just be off now. Yeah. <laughs> so, so he's learning to fly in the National Flying School over there. 
So now you're back in Australia. Uh, what flying are you doing back here? I'm flying the A320 with Jetstar and doing that roughly one or two days a week. And for the rest of the time, I'm managing the safety investigations there. Now, you'd mentioned just before in our chat that uh, you were finding that the new rules and the structures and the airspace and environment here in Australia was actually kind of dangerous. Do you want to elaborate on that? Yeah, well, in Australia, you've got um, the airspace structure is complicated and it is not user-friendly for uh, regular uh, or jets. Uh, for public transport, regular public transport. Um, probably GA people will say it's not user-friendly for them either. And also, in areas where we have that CTAF airspace, you're mixing high-speed jet traffic with small, light aircraft and uncontrolled. And that is always going to be very, very uh, challenging environment. Yeah, I've, I've, uh, we had an episode recently where uh, Representative Casa was here to talk about the pending airspace changes, and I, I did mention the, the situation of when a, uh, an RPT comes into a CTAF area, and it's yeah, yeah you, you've either got the situation of the RPT guy going, hey, you know, you can hear it in their voice, we're the RPT, get the heck out of our way, we're the big guys, or you get the other extreme, which is that there's a lot of trepidation in the voice, going, oh my god, I've got all these dots, what am I going to do? <laughs> you know, mm. I'm coming in with all these ultralights and GAs, oh. Well, uh, you know, at the um, I know what you're saying. Like some people say, yeah, yeah, get out of my way. But you expect the pilot of an airliner to have a certain level of professionalism and a certain level of expertise, experience, and all that sort of stuff, which is not always going to be the case with a light aircraft. It might be someone mm. who's just gone first fault low. You know, yep, yep. He, he hasn't got hasn't got that accumulated experience yet to fall back on. So I think in some cases it's being rather expecting too much for this traffic to to be mixing in the way it does without you know putting some restrictions on it. But for me, I've seen a little bit of it, but it's the reports that I read about it more that upset me. That yeah. I can see that it is an issue, and that's why I speak about it because I believe that it is an unnecessary threat that we shouldn't have to be putting up with. Nobody should be putting up with it, really. So so how would you change it? How would you fix that? Well, you've got to pour more money into it um, or, or, you know, completely change the whole structure. Uh, obviously, uh, places like Avalon, which were uncontrolled for years yep. and years and years, the pressure there came about so much that it, it forced Avalon to... It forced the situation where they started putting controllers down at Avalon because of the density of the traffic and the number of incidents that were occurring um, down there. So, you know, it's like we don't want to wait for something nasty to happen before we do something. I'd rather do something about it before anything happens. Yeah, no, definitely. All all the indicators were there that we were about to have uh, our first major collision. Yes, at Avalon, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but um, that situation has vastly improved now, and it, and all it takes is a control controllers, air traffic controllers, to be there. That's all that's needed. But yep. of course, that's a, a cost factor, and you know that jacks up the cost of flying and and mm-hmm. all sorts of things. And it's a trade-off of you know how much can everyone afford to pay and so forth. 
Well, that's an issue. That's something that uh, Grant and I talk about a lot is, is the cost of flying uh, in this country. And, I mean, you're talking about Avalon, for instance. Uh, it's about $113, I think, just to shoot the ILS on a training flight at Avalon. Really? It's ridiculous. And we, uh, we, we find that the price of flying here is, is, is just the major disincentive. Uh, do you have a view on the, the... I mean, how are user fees in this country compared to Europe? Well, I never paid for it. <laughs> I understand that, but I, I guess but, on, the, on the training uh, side... I mean, I know there were land fees and air navigation charges and and all this sort of stuff but it upsets me to think that it costs that much to shoot an ILS at Avalon um why should it it's well it's it's ridiculous it's it's yeah it's it's if they're saying look we really don't want you people here go away yeah and is it because we've got a, a such a bureaucratic system that it's choking everything and and it's costing so much money to keep everything to keep that system running to run the the rest of it It might be something to do with the fact that it's owned by a road freight company perhaps (laughs) 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 well how much does it cost to do one at moravin well you can't shoot an ils at moravin it's an mdb but it's not less but um i think it's uh, i think it is cheaper at essendon but not much yeah um, okay well, it's uh, it, it is one of my bugbears about it is that you know, like if I had a company and I just charge, you know, it's it's like okay, yeah, you've got to charge out what it costs you to do things, fine. But where's the incentive to cut costs? Where's the incentive to assess what you're doing and see? Uh-huh. Oh my God, we could cut three people out of this whole process. That kind of thing. If I was in a commercial environment running a company and I didn't cut, I have my um, lunch eaten out from under me by competitors who do. Yeah, that's right. There's and no- I mean, I think that's a very interesting discussion and I'd love to talk more about that because, uh, um, as I say, to me, it's like, for instance, go back to flying an ILS at Avalon. You can't tell me, what is it, 115 113 last I was told, yeah. All right, so what are you going to do? Oh, okay, if I've got to go to Avalon, I won't have the ILS, thank you very much. Uh, you know, I'll just make a landing without the ILS. Is, is that a choice? Is that going to be cheaper? Well, it would yeah. be cheaper, but I mean, if you're an instrument pilot... And you're well, flying, that's right. You know, yeah, you've got to practice it and that, all that sort of stuff. And if it's borderline, you know, then you're going to get guys to say, no, turn it off, I don't want to pay for it, and that's more yep. dangerous. Well, yeah, is, that's that's is, what they're facing in the US where they they were yeah. trying to bring in the user fee on filing a flight plan and they said, well, that's just going to push everyone out of the flight plan. It's going to become unsafe mm. skies. Mm. But unfortunately, these things don't come clear until there's, a, there's an accident or something. And then they go, oh, you know what? We pushed it too far. I mean, my my opinion of it is that it's it's not a big vote getter aviation, and it's not a big vote winner for politicians. So they don't have a lot of incentive no. to do anything about it. And um, unless you're making a noise yeah. over over, the, over their houses or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then suddenly all the flight paths change yeah. <laughs> for no safe reason. It's just oh well, my electorate's upset. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sydney. Yeah. <coughs> Sydney. Yeah. Yes, we won't mention Sydney, no. (laughs) (laughs) If our people could take good lessons just from going to Heathrow and watching how they control there, Mm -hmm. uh, where some of the best controlling in the world is done, uh, I think one of the frustrations with Sydney is that they get more noise exposure because the traffic flow is less efficient and there's airplanes up there for longer burning fuel and making more noise because they can't get on the ground any quicker. Um, and arresting their uh, descent too many times. Mm, exactly, because yeah. of the airspace. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> now, um, let's let's roll right back to very early on. A couple, one of the things I noted down here that you've mentioned a couple of times as we've been chatting through this is air racing. Yes. 
Now let's mm. let's let's throw safety out the window, so to speak. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I know it's uh, it's it's not that kind of crazy on um, unsafe racing. What what kind of air racing have you been involved in? Well, there's basically two types. There's the ones which involve navigational skills as well, uh, in combination with speed. And there's ones that involve just straight out speed. Now, the ones with navigational skills, for instance. There used to be a thing called the Southern Cross Air Race, and maybe some people will remember that one. But I can remember that was a two-day event, and we would be in there with 240 aircraft. That's how many raced over the two days. And what you had to do was flight plan as accurately as possible, and to prove that you'd been over the track that you said you were going over, you had to answer questions about, you know, like what colour was the shed on, you know. Oh, cool. A A spotter's rally. Exactly, like a car rally, if you like, but in the air. Um, and, but if you said you were going to be over uh, the turning point at that a particular time, you had to be as close to that as possible. And anything outside of 30 seconds either side of it, you started losing points. And there's people on the ground that were timing that. So sometimes you'd be flying towards the thing with the flaps hanging out and the stall warning going off, you know, because... <laughs> <laughs> You're going to get there too soon. Or the whole thing opened up and uh, going flat chat because you're running behind time. So it was skills in that way. And the other type of racing, which I really enjoyed doing, was a bit like the Red Bull race, but not as, you know, dramatic. But we used to race around Port Phillip Bay. It was called the Frieda Thompson Aerial Derby after Frieda Thompson. Okay. And she flew in the 30s. Mm-hmm. And you had places that, like you, the aerodromes you went to around the bay, and you had people on the ground there, and it was like gates, and you flew over the top, and you just had to go as fast as you could uh, without cutting corners. You lost points for cutting corners. Yeah, that was great fun. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. There was less less of us in those because they were only for women. That yeah. those fast ones but there would be like maybe 15 or 20 of us in those and and you had to go single pilot the other ones you would go with a full crew okay Mm. so that's the southern cross one was yeah you could have as many people on as you wanted to make that make it happen well yeah uh like a four-seater airplane you'd usually go with three you know because you you want some luggage taking luggage and stuff like that yeah but that's there your spotters your navigator and your spotter and all that sort of stuff that sounds like Mm. it was a lot of fun it was a heck of a lot of fun in those days, and um, I remember one of the Southern Cross air races, I was in ANSET at the time, and it was great fun to just go back and air race, and there were three ANSET captains flying an aeroplane, because uh, oh, no. one of them owned one, you know, so the three of them, and of course they thought that that, that qualified them immediately to the race, well of course it didn't, and um, I think... At the beginning, I said, you know, do you guys want me to give you some help or whatever? Oh, no, of course not. (laughs) Uh, So they blasted off in their, I think it was a Cessna 210 they had, and and I was in a Cherokee Arrow with two other ladies. So we had a female crew. And um, after the first night, uh, they were sitting in 87th position or something (laughs) like that. <laughs> so, so they they came up and asked for some help, but it was too late. Yeah, um, uh, yeah. bridges, eh? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And we we ended up coming ninth that year, so we did pretty well. Cool. Yeah, oh. and uh, much to their display. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, but also, you know what they say about you know three captains and one pilot and one aircraft. It's terrible. It's dangerous. 
Yeah. yeah. Who's who's really flying? <laughs> That's exactly, yeah, who's really in charge? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> whereas, uh, <laughs> where, where, whereas where it comes to racing, I'm always in charge. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. yeah. Okay, Deborah, we're probably running a little bit long here, so uh, just uh, we've been actually uh, monitoring our Twitter feed here, and one of our listeners, uh, Ed Stubbs, sees a, uh, a young student pilot, I think he is, over in WA. Uh, he's, oh, yeah. He just plugged a question in here, and he wants to know uh, what was your most uh, difficult or challenging slash scary situation that you've been in during your career? Uh, that's easy. It was on the Fokker 50 going from Amsterdam to Stavanger in Norway, and it was a very uh, wintry um, afternoon and uh, we had the engine anti-ice on and we had the de-icing boots going because we were in icing conditions and then all of a sudden there was a very loud bang from the left engine, loud bang from the right engine and the whole aeroplane started vibrating and losing performance. Uh, There was nothing indicating incorrectly on the instruments at all but the aeroplane clearly wasn't performing as it should have been so the airspeed was decreasing and we were losing altitude um, and we finally sort of managed to level off at, at uh, four or five thousand feet below our altitude that we started at and our airspeed was something like hovering around 170 knots which is quite slow and we struggled shaking like that vibrating all the way towards the Vanger. Uh, it wasn't until we started descent we went through 10,000 feet and the aeroplane just started behaving perfectly normally again and it was a complete and utter mystery to us. They couldn't find anything wrong with it on the ground. But later on, it was established that the temperature sensor for the the for switching on the engine out of the icing, which was automatically connected to that temperature sensor. So in other words, uh, you could select the engine anti-icing on, but it wouldn't come on until this temperature sensed below 6 degrees Celsius. That temperature sensor wasn't working correctly, so we actually didn't have any engine anti-ice on. And uh, Yeah, so the engines were actually chewing ice or like big ice crushes, which is why they were suffocating in a way and not putting out the performance they should have been and why it disappeared through 10,000 feet because the air warmed up. It was pro- yeah, that was like, pretty scary. Yeah, that, that, they were like giant slushies, slurpees. <laughs> Gi- giant ice crushes, yeah. yeah. And why, not, why neither of them were damaged is beyond my uh, comprehension, but it says a lot for the uh, Dart engine. Yeah, definitely. Mm. But, but mm. Built to last. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Next. Okay, well, and just um, oh, just one more from me, uh, Deborah, before we we sort of finish things off here. Uh-huh. Um, it's it's pretty well known. I mean, it's 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 a phenomenon, I guess, if you like, here in Australia, but right around the world, that women uh, are pretty well underrepresented within aviation, yeah. particularly in pilot ranks. Why do you think that is, and what can be done to address that, or, or does that need addressing, or is that just a natural thing, perhaps, or what what do you think is the factors affecting that? Um, it's a really good question. It's one that gets asked me uh, so many times and, and one that I don't know that I really have the answer for, except perhaps that many, many years ago, a friend of mine, she had a daughter and she was five years old and she used to take her around to the um, women pilots meetings. And one day, this little girl saw a, a guy in a pilot's uniform and she was like, oh, you know, mummy, can boys be airline pilots too? <laughs> so that sort of said something to me, that it's a matter of exposure. And I don't think we expose our younger generation to this industry enough, perhaps, um, that more of us should be out there 
telling them that it's possible that they can do this or showing them or educating them in this way because to me it's still a world which is vastly unknown and that's becoming even more so again because of all the security and those types of issues uh, you know once upon a time you used to be able to let children come into the cockpit and they would see yep. sitting there and go oh yeah okay there's ladies up here too but that doesn't happen anymore so the children don't get exposed to what's possible and girls don't get exposed to it so I think that's got something to do with it so we need yeah, we need more female role models for instance um, the I remember when the c-17s first arrived on these shores for the Royal Australian Air Force and I believe the lead pilot of that squadron uh, was a was a woman I, I, I'm not I, I, her name escapes me at the moment but I mean I guess because of, of the struggles that you went through uh, back in the back in the onset times you're you're always going to be held up uh, particularly in this country as a as a role model for female pilots are you approached often by you know politicians or industry heavyweights to, to sort of promote these uh, the industry to, to females I haven't been approached by politicians but I do get approached by schools to to do talks and things like that and sometimes people or young girls write to me and say that I was their inspiration and I think oh my god was I <laughs> you know <laughs> um, it, it's, it's kind of nice to know so I spoke recently at the Australian Women Pilots Association, but because of cost uh, to get to that particular meeting, uh, a lot of young people didn't turn up. And I thought, well, that's something that we have to address is we actually have to go to them, I think, rather than incurring costs for them to come to forums like that to see and hear and learn about things. We probably need to take those things out to them. So, yeah, uh, there's a lot to be said for educating and and exposing the younger generation to the possibilities of what they can do. And there's different media for doing that now, too. I mean, there's lots of things like YouTube and all that sort of stuff which has taken off. But I still think that you there's much a lot of value in the face-to-face contact, the, you know, the reality, showing them there as a physical person, mm. explaining to them what they can do. I guess it's not only to young ladies coming through school looking at this, it's an example to everybody and, and I've always thought that of, of your story is it's an example of persistence. It's, it's mm. cross-gender in my view, like, you know, I've been listeners to this podcast to be well familiar with my story now and I walked away from aviation, you know, it's you know, threw my hands in the air and walked away. Um, and I really wish that I'd, I'd persisted and, and, and my struggles were, were tiny compared with yours. Uh, so, yeah. Mine just came down to money. <laughs> so, so it's an example. That's that's what I'm saying. It's it's an example of persistence pays off. And if anybody wants to do not only this industry but anything they want to do, it's just a matter of focusing on the goal, isn't it, and, and just yeah. pursuing it relentlessly. Yeah, just hang in there. You know, like it, it's it was – to me, it just seemed like an impossible thing to actually achieve, but I had confidence or faith in myself that I could do it, that there was only the systems that were going to stop me, the the, the uh, politics or whatever. And I thought, well, I'm not going to allow that to stop me because I know I have the ability to do it. And, yeah, I think that's just a stubbornness thing as well. <laughs> Yeah, I'm Taurus, so there you go. <laughs> oh, that explains a lot. <laughs> you would have fit, I, I can see how you would have fitted in well in the Dutch culture then. <laughs> <laughs> I was flying with a female co-pilot uh, in Europe 
and yep. um, we were discussing, as all women pilots do, we were discussing men. And somehow we got onto the subject of pilot selections and why there weren't enough, why there weren't a lot of women flying. Actually, what you've just been speaking about, and. Um, I've done a lot of thinking about pilot selection processes over the years and I said to her, it's very simple. What you have to do is get the candidate to read 10 numbers back in random order because over there you've had a four-figure flight number and six-figure radio frequency. So read 10 numbers back in random order and do something else at the same time like put landing lights on or whatever you want to do. And uh, she thought she thought for about ten seconds, and she looked at me and she said, "Yeah, but that would cut out all the guys." Was <laughs> <laughs> <Nice>, actually <laughs> it's very funny. It's, it just just make sure that uh, the guys have done more study and practice on uh, muscle memory, so that you, you, know, you, know, you know exactly where to put your hand to put the landing lights on. <laughs> well, yeah, I know, but like it's the it's the I've seen it. I've seen them go. Yeah. Should I put my hand up now, or do I bring it yep. down? Or death by committee? <laughs> yeah, ex- exactly. Or um, I say, go and watch any young mother in the supermarket with a toddler, I, right? I, and I, I they are—they are like so skilled at putting all that stuff back on the shelf that that yeah. kid puts in the thing, right? Without even looking. Exactly. They're perfect. They're on pilot. They're, they're reading the back of the of the laundry powder and putting the uh, thing back that the kid just took exactly. out. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. It's yeah. fascinating to watch. It's a great display of situational awareness, if you ask me. Exactly <laughs> <laughs> right. So, Whereas a guy come down and get to the checkout and go, how did that end up in there? Yeah. <laughs> There's one more question that has come in from one of our listeners, from uh, Takis Design, uh, one of our listeners, and would like to know, um, when you're up flying at altitude, do you, do you think you look at the world differently? Do you think uh, lady pilots look at the world differently? to guys when they're up there? Possibly. When I'm flying at night time is only when I think like that. I think, think things particularly. Yeah. I always think about everyone asleep, uh, everyone being asleep. But I have flown across the Atlantic with um, the, on the E330 and the other pilot had a pair, very high-powered pair of binoculars. And he said to me, have you ever looked at, through these when you're flying, and I said no, and he handed them to me, and I was just staggered at what I saw, yeah. which was just like when you've got a television that goes snowy, you know, with all those yeah. little white spots on it. That's how many stars are in the sky. Yeah, you would not have believed how many more stars you could see through that those um, binoculars. So. I think there's probably not much difference between male and female, but there's people that have fascination with different things. And he was obviously fascinated with the stars. Yeah. I get fascinated with what people are doing on the ground. <laughs> <laughs> As you're passing above. Well, I, I know, I'm going over the top, yeah. Yeah. So. Well, I know, I know through the course of this entire discussion, I've been absolutely wrapped to uh, discover that, uh, yes, you're definitely one of us, one of these airplane loonies who is career-minded, focused on the flying, and that's yeah. that's it. And I think that's the big thing is that, like, as Steve was saying, you've either got it or you haven't got it. You've either got the bug or you don't. And uh, Exactly, it's, yeah. It's great to see that it's not just a guy thing. It's It, it spans everything. Oh, yeah. Yes. No, that's true. The women are probably even worse. If I <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's excellent. There we go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right, well, the we, ones that have got that disease that you're talking about, but yeah, 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 mm, yeah the flying yeah. bug. 
Yeah, yeah. no, def- definitely. Yeah, and I think I have to say here that I can look back and be very grateful that I've had this career because it's been absolutely wonderful and it's not over yet, of course, but I'm very aware that that's been very special. Yep, mm. that's amazing. Well, I tell you what, Deborah, it's been special for us. This has been a, an absolute privilege to uh, meet and chat with you tonight. This is a much longer discussion than we thought we'd had, but we're extremely grateful for your time here on the podcast tonight. Oh, it's a pleasure, really, my pleasure. We've, we've, yeah, I, look, this has been great. We've learnt a lot, and what you've gone through, and, and your perseverance and persistence, and yeah, what what you've done is just amazing. So it has been great. Thank you so much. Okay, thank you. Thanks, guys. It's been a real pleasure. And so there we go, folks. Grant, what a fascinating story. Indeed. I really, really, really enjoyed chatting with Deborah. Uh, it was educational and great fun. And, and I think one of the more amusing parts for me was uh, that she's just like any other airline pilot, male, female. It's the same kind of thing. The lines of, you're not a real airline pilot till you've had your third marriage. Uh, you know, it's loving the loving the job and, and really getting it that, about flying, that flying is absolutely beautiful and a lot of fun and doesn't matter if male or female. Uh, she was indicating that, uh, you know, if you're hooked on flying and have your career, that's it. You know, I think I um, after we finished recording that, I actually made that point to her that, the, that one of the things I liked the most about that interview was that, sure, we talked about the male-female sort of situation uh, in the earlier days, but as the conversation went on there, it was a lot less about, gee whiz, isn't it fascinating that you're a woman doing this job to where it just became you know pilots talking to pilots and that's what it's all about really isn't it in these enlightened times and it's really what it should have been about back then too she had the skills to do the job so why not let her do the job no definitely and uh you know it's she she helped push through the barriers so that uh, lady pilots today find it a lot easier to do their job still not perfect still got a long way to go but it's certainly a lot better than it was uh, 30 years ago just before we wrap it up too grant i just wanted to make the point that when we were recording that interview with deborah we actually sent out a tweet on the PCDU stream announcing the fact that we were in fact talking to her and inviting our listeners to uh, submit any questions uh, via Twitter and uh, that worked quite well didn't it Grant a couple of listeners uh, sent in some questions there which was was really good so thanks folks for those of you who uh, just happened to cross our tweet at the time I know that's probably one of the downsides of Twitter is that you've sort of got to be there at the time when it comes out to have it current but uh, for those of you who were able to submit a few questions I thought that worked really well Grant and I think we'll uh, we'll certainly keep that up in future interviews It was really good and I'd, I'd certainly like to do it again yep so an excellent show mate uh, really great interview thanks so much to Deborah Laurie once again for uh, making available so much of her time uh, was quite uh, late in the evening when we managed to record that one so uh, <laughs> we really are appreciative of that and uh, folks we hope you enjoyed it we'll be back soon with another episode of PCDU but until then just remember this it's what's down under that counts you've been listening to Plain Crazy Down Under hosted by Steve Vischer and Grant McCarran Show notes, links to our forum, Facebook fan page, YouTube channel and Grant and Steve's own blogs can be found on our website www.plaincrazydownunder.com or keep up with our Twitter handle of PCDU. Comments or feedback can be left on our website or email us at plaincrazydownunder at gmail.com. If you'd like to help with the ongoing production of the show, feel free to assist via the donate button on the website. Any contributions are most gratefully appreciated. Incidental music and sound effects are courtesy of soundsnap.com and title music is You Name It 5 by Brian Simpson. Production and editing by Steve Vischer. This has been a Southern Skies online media podcast.
kind folks at the Department of the Bleeding Obvious have asked us to make this statement. The views and opinions we present in this podcast are ours and do not necessarily represent those of groups we work with or are associated with, although we think they probably should. We certainly don't claim to be experts, we're just opinionated enthusiasts who are willing to comment publicly on the world around us. This show is intended as entertainment and any education that may occur is purely coincidental. As with anything in life, it is your responsibility to determine what does or does not work in your situation and to seek out suitable guidance and or instruction. This podcast is released under a Creative Commons non-commercial by attribution license. For more details on this license and our contact details, please visit our website at www.playingcrazydownunder.com. Thanks, folks. That's cool. Yeah. Oh, yep. Yep. oh, I just didn't want to. Sorry, I did, <laughs> oh, well, for okay. both of you, actually, I just also didn't want to derail Steve if you if he had a uh, a plan there. Uh, he says but, derailed ever because I'm a train driver. You see. Okay. <laughs> oh, there you go. Yuck, <laughs> there you yuck, go. Yuck. Actually, I've always wanted to sit up the front of a train. See, I've always wanted to ride in the cockpit of an A330. So there you go. Yeah, I had that explained to me by uh, one of the Dutch KLM guys when I was out at, at Albury when we did the reenactment of the oh, oh, Ivor. Okay, yeah, yeah. nice. Yeah, oh, so Steve would have loved uh... it. I was surrounded by Dutchmen. <laughs> 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 this person, uh, I'm just just give me one sec. Sorry, Steve, just giving you an edit point. Uh, yeah, it doesn't say where they're from. Uh, the person is is. Uh, no, let's start that again. We've, sorry, I just, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a mere male. I can't multitask. No, <laughs> okay, understood. Shut up, Grant. I'll, I'll tell you a story about. No, go on, go ahead. Yeah, uh, uh, it's just Steve being a hassle. <laughs> and I can remember. I can remember. And I can remember. Take two hundred and seventy-three. Yeah. One of the more amusing for me. Well, I think. Ah, excuse me. <laughs>